Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Modern Retail Podcast. I'm Kale Guthrie-Weissman, the Editor-in-Chief here at Modern Retail. This week, I am really excited. We have Monica Royer. She is the co-founder and CEO of Monica and Andy, one half of the name, one might say, which is a really interesting and exciting kids apparel brand. It's been around for many years now. I know that you recently you had a very big announcement involving Walmart, which I'm sure we will get into. But also, Modern Retail has covered Monica and Andy for many years now just because you're you were an early kids apparel DTC player. And so I want to go into just the history of the company, how you decided upon the trajectory and growth strategy you did. And then we can talk about all the things you're doing now because you're doing the thing that it makes sense every DTC company is doing, which is, you know, going into wholesale because that's how you grow, I guess you could say. We'll talk about all that. But Monica, how are you doing? I am doing great. Thank you so much for having me. Super excited to be on the podcast today. And I'm still having a lot of fun building the business. Yes, I'm having a lot of fun learning about how you're growing the business. (laughs) But first, let's start with who who are you or what was your professional background? Correct me if I'm wrong, but Monica and Andy like first launched in 2014. Is that right? It launched in 2014. So we're getting close to our 10-year anniversary, which is unbelievable. I'm not sure if you can count COVID years as actual years of progressing or doing anything at this point. So I feel like maybe that's like seven or eight years into the business, but We launched in 2014. I had my daughter in 2010. So I had actually worked in the pharmaceutical industry before. So previous to this, I did absolutely nothing that would suggest that I would build a business. (laughs) I was not entrepreneurial as a kid. I didn't want to have my own business. I there was nothing that would say that I would do this. But it was interesting, like as I was shopping for her, like literally from my hospital bed. Um, you know, I had watched, I had had a front row seat. My brother had built Bonobo starting in 07. And so I had become his unofficial, I guess, advisor, if you will. I didn't know what I was getting myself into at the time. Didn't know anything about direct-to-consumer businesses. I don't think anybody did in 2007. No, no, that was, no one talked about that then. Nobody talked about it. But I saw that he, he had built this like incredibly special relationship with his consumers by the time I had my daughter in 2010. I had lived a plant-based lifestyle for 10 years up until then as well. So I thought a lot about like, what was the product that was touching her skin? Would it be organic? What were the things that we would be putting on and into her body? And then as I was shopping online, I thought parents deserved this better experience. I saw that he had built it with Bonobos and that there was more of this like one-to-one feeling of, um, of just feeling like there was a special experience. And I wanted, I wanted that for parents. And so I actually quit my day job. I was at home with my daughter full time for three years. And that was really the, the real embers of what would become the fire of the business was it was initially all about product. I wanted organic cotton. My mom is an immigrant from India. I thought a lot about the factories, what, you know, what was the quality of the factories that we were working with in addition to the quality of the product. There was a lot of things that were important to me, but as a new mom myself, the next three years, I was just learning and growing as a parent. And the brand became so much more about community from that experience where I thought, I felt so out of the know as a mom, and I wanted to build a brand that felt inclusive and could bring parents into the know um, so that they didn't feel hopefully as clueless as I did as a new parent. Got it. And so when did you, what year did you quit your job? Because was it 2012? No. So I actually, I went through my maternity leave. And after that, I thought, you know what? I just can't go back. So I actually never went back to work after having my daughter. I never went back to my regular job. Yeah. Um, And in some ways, Kale, it's unbelievable that I actually decided to do this because in retrospect, I saw how hard it was for my brother to build bonobos. And, you know, my poor parents, like we put them through to startups. My husband also is an entrepreneur, as is my sister-in-law. 
Oh, and no. so between the four of us, <laughs> nobody has like a, a regular job, if you will. Um, and my parents have been incredibly supportive. But I think like the journey is never linear or easy for anybody. And so um, I, I should I knew what I was getting myself into when I started this. Got it. So walk me through what the idea was or the the business model was when you first launched. You know, 2007, Bonobos, DTC wasn't really a thing, and it sort of made it a thing. Um, and then in 2014, it was, and you sort of had, I guess, social media on your side back then, I imagine. So how did you how did you go about it? What was the the concept? So the brand was all about really soft organic clothing. And so for me, it was, again, like, how the, the the product was made, we use got certified organic factories. Like how could we bring the best and softest clothing to parents? But how could we do it in a way that you understood that from the online experience? At the time, there was like all of these big box retailers. There was like so many choices. There weren't that many people online. And so it was like, how do we bring this like unique um, softness to parents, like direct, more direct to consumer? But as we actually launched in 2014, Kale, we decided that we were going to do online and offline simultaneously. We were going to put a store here in Chicago in Lincoln Park where the brand was born and, and my daughter as well. And we would office out of the back of that store. And so what we didn't know was that physical retail and that physical community would take over really the first three years of the business. We sold everything, almost everything we had in the store. We didn't pay for a single online acquisition maybe until almost 2018 at that point, late 2017. But it was really, that was where the brand was truly built because we did it with the community. The cl- We started the store with like art, music, story time. At the time I had a three-year-old and I was like, what is she going to do when I work? Like we need to have activities and classes. I had a tremendous amount of support for my parents who moved into the same, not condo unit, but they live in the same condo building as us. So it really took a community for me to be able to build the brand as well. Um, and then we got a chance to see our customers every day. How did they like the blanket? How did they like the hospital cuddle box? What were they gravitating towards? And we realized really in early days that like toddlers could be big customers for us as well. Like we were event driven, but people would walk in with a two-year-old and they would love the brand. And we, we, and then we thought like, oh, we need to make sure that we have like a size range and really develop this pregnancy to preschool. And so I will say it wasn't until late 2017, early 2018, that we really started to catch more fire online because we finally had the product. We had solidified the physical retail space and we felt like much more, like we we had that product market fit. We understood exactly what we were doing in order to really start scaling the business. That's super interesting. I mean, it makes sense logically that a brand would start with a store and then expand from there. But in this, the world, at least the world of modern retail, it's usually you're an online brand and then you test out stores as a way. And we, ne- and the funny thing, Kale, is we never wanted to be a store. It was just this idea of like, oh, let's have a storefront. And, but the physical retail medium was so powerful. So many people came in. We sold so much more product than we thought. And so during that time, we actually did 14 pop-ups along with that store. So we worked with the CEOs of Maysearch and General Growth, which were like big malls at the time. And we did these really advantageous deals. Like we would pop into a place before Warby was like taking the location and being there full time. And it was an incredible customer acquisition tool. But after we saw the ability to scale online with a small team, we decided we really needed to be focused. And so while we wanted to keep our Upper West Side location and our Chicago location, and the pop-ups lived through the lifetime of what they were supposed to do, we kind of decided that there needed to be a shift, that we weren't like a big enough team to be doing 
mass physical retail and mass online. And we were like, let's, let's really focus on online and grow like the heart and soul of this business there. When I talk with founders, a lot of them talk about community, and it's a very big marketing buzzword. It seems like with you, because you actually started with a local store where you were holding events and we're talking to people in Lincoln Park, that's actual, like, very localized community, I guess and, you could say. And at the time, you know, what's so interesting is there wasn't – that buzzword of community wasn't there in 2014, to your point. And so for us, there was – you know, the the folks that were working in Monica Andy were other parents with me. It was like people that I had met in classes with my daughter became our photographer – ran our store and it was like very grassroots. Mm -hmm. um, and some of those folks are actually still with us today. Like the person that started the store with me and was like one of the first people that was there doing it is still somebody that like builds out all of our physical retail spaces and does our packaging. So community for us was born out of necessity as moms that were just like getting started on doing this business. And we didn't realize we were onto something. We didn't realize that was an acquisition tool at the time. <laughs> we were just like, oh, it's something to amuse like our children. And then we realized that there was like new parent support groups and people were struggling with breastfeeding and all of those things. And the medium of bringing people together for me, um, you know, as I had a new baby, I feel like there was like diaper blowout. So my daughter would be screaming. And so I really wanted to create a space in which there would already be chaos all around. So you wouldn't feel so bad coming in with like your, the, the piece of chaos that you might be bringing in. And so it wasn't some brilliant business idea that we had. It turned out to be a great business solution that so many other people have also done as well. But for us, it just became out of this like authentic feeling of like, how do we actually offer parents what we feel like they need for both them and their children? And today, obviously, that's a much bigger part of what everybody's doing. But at the time, there was nobody talking about that. Yeah, no, you're totally right. I feel like it's only been in the last, I think it was sort of a COVID thing that made people talk more about community, which we can get into. But I wanted to ask, Definitely. like, it, you know, when you were expanding or focusing more on your online presence, how did you approach that community aspect? Because there it is much more difficult to do that digitally than it is in a store in a neighborhood. Absolutely. I think a lot of that then came through pulling people on social media, like understanding what they were thinking about stuff, making sure that we did more intimate surveying of our customers, if you will. And then we took to, all of our classes became online. We were doing virtual classes. We were doing live streams on Instagram. Um, we were doing everything in which allowed us to be able to reach people in as many communities as possible. And it became so much more powerful. There's something still beautiful about being able to come together in person and underneath, like, you know, within four walls really say, hey, like, this is like the feeling. There's something like an in-person feeling. But we realized that you didn't need to be in person to be able to educate consumers about things about parenting bringing our experts directly into your home. And COVID only accelerated our ability to do that so much better as well because nobody was leaving and there was so much invention that came out of that. I mean, even us sitting here on Zoom and actually like, you know, it, it's just, it's a way for us to be able to to reach people that we wouldn't normally be able, be able to see. And so I think that only deepened during that time for us. Got it. So were you doing virtual events before COVID or was that we, just necessary? No, we did do some virtual events before COVID, but not nearly to the scale of what that would become because the audience and the ability to do that just, just became so much bigger. That said, there was still a lot of things that we were able to do virtually that we were able to do through social media that sort of brought that feeling of community together. And then we would we would pop up in all sorts of places. We Even before we had a store in New York, we were hosting events and bringing community in there as well. And so it was kind of this mix of being virtual and in person, just not in an actual storefront in, in a lot of the events that we did. 
Does virtual still resonate today? Obviously not to the point of COVID, but like I feel like there was fatigue in the last year with that kind of stuff. Have you experienced that with what you've been putting on? You know, I think that we've what we've really tried to do at every point, like every year that goes, you have to kind of put your ear to the ground and say, all right, like how have things shifted and what's the right mix? And it's sort of like a recipe that you're always like perfecting. So I think there's nothing about five years ago that worked four years ago that worked three years ago that works today. And so every year we relook at it. I definitely think that there was a, during after COVID, I think we saw so many more people going to in-person because we were just like, let's get out, let's travel. I definitely think it's not shifting back to not being in person, but I think there's areas where like, if you're pregnant and you're expecting, we've got classes in our Lincoln Park guide shop in our upper West side and people definitely go in person. But there's a lot of people that also like to do that virtually too. There's things that I would do in person before that now if there's like a virtual opportunity to do it, it's like, oh, like my Bella, my my daughter has a, a math tutor. And like before COVID, we would have gone in person. Now it's like, I can't even imagine like 20 minutes to get there and 20 minutes to get back. I mean, it's no big deal, but like, oh, you can just pop online and do it. So we absolutely see an appetite for those virtual classes. Sometimes they're live, sometimes they're on demand. And I think over time, like that'll shift and we'll continue to figure out what like next year's recipe is compared to this year's. Do you like I, I'm just always interested in the digital programming and or just at all any sort of programming digital and not for brands. But has that increased over the years or has it been at the same cadence? Like, or is it, like or have you just seen, you know, now we have this many types of classes, this or how has that changed? It's definitely increased over the years and it's definitely increased since COVID. I think the amount of people that you were able to do things with like digitally and virtually before COVID was much, much smaller. I think that people were like more like reticent to get on video. And a lot of times you're not even on video as you're doing these group classes, like the instructor might be on video. So not everybody's seeing you, but I think um, even our grandparents class or things that maybe grandparents wouldn't have been as like at the forefront of technology to be doing before. Now, like everybody kind of knows how to get online and do something and has developed a comfort level with it. And people can do it from their phones, right? Where before, like maybe you'd be like, oh, I've got to be sitting at my computer. Now you might be listening to a class and driving somewhere like you're listening to a podcast. So I think that the opportunity to reach more people with information, and for us, that's just fulfilling that, the the promise of what we want to do, which is like bringing that in the know feeling to parents wherever they're at. And so changing to where parents are at each year is really important for us. But the ability to be, reach people virtually is only continuing to expand. You know, you've mentioned the Upper West Side store. Can you just give a little bit of a, a timeline of, do you have Upper West Side, Lincoln Park? Do you have another Illinois store? Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, so, so the other store that we have is actually at Prentice Women's Hospital at Northwestern here in Chicago. That is the fifth largest women's uh, hospital in the country. And so we've got a pop-up like right in the lobby, which is incredible. So we get to see, so my, my cousin is there right now in labor, which is exciting. So oh my gosh, already, congrats to your family. That's so fun. Um, yeah. So, and we actually had uh, one other location, but that was a four-year pop-up that recently just closed because we got to the end of the pop-up lease and, you know, we just decided that that was, that, that we weren't going to be there longer, but um, yeah, so we've got two like more permanent locations, if you will, which is Lincoln Park and the Upper West Side. And then Prentice is also a pop-up. And what were the the timelines? So like, when did you open Upper West Side? What so, made you decide to do that? All yeah, that. so I think that in 2014 is when we did Lincoln Park. And that was sort of like this idea of like, oh, let's have an office and let's have it be in the back of this store. And then I believe we opened Upper West Side, I want to say in like 2017 or 2018. We, we knew we had so many customers in New York. We had so many customers in LA as well. So like the coasts had a lot of customers 
And we actually had a pop-up in Santa Monica for three years. So during this time, also with Mace Ridge, one of the big malls, we had a pop-up in Santa Monica. So for a while, we were like Chicago, New York, LA, so to speak. Um, and then LA, we like COVID happened and we were like, all right, we're not going to put a permanent place there. But the Upper West Side, we just had so many customers. My brother lived in New York at the time. We spent so much time in New York. Um, it was a place that I feel like there was, we had, we haven't, we still have like such a big community of like parents that's there. So the Upper West Side location and the Lincoln Park location have been tremendous. So I know that you you have the Walmart announcement, which was only was pretty recent this summer. Mm-hmm. Is that correct? Yes. Did you always think you were going to make that jump into wholesale? Given that, or what? What, what you know? Let's go back to twenty fourteen through twenty eighteen. Did you just think we're going to be online only and have our stores, and that's going to be it? Yeah. So I think like it, so, and actually, the Walmart announcement was in February of oh sorry about that. Now that I'm thinking about it, no, no, it's okay. I was just thinking back. So like we, we launched in February of twenty three with Walmart, uh, technically. I did not think that we would have like massive wholesale. That wasn't the goal, but we did work with Nordstrom. We worked with Bye Bye Baby. We had always like dabbled in wholesale and we saw it as a great way to like additionally meet our consumers. Um, And so it was really interesting as the Walmart opportunity came to us, it came more out of the blue. It wasn't something that like we had planned or that we, that we saw coming. Uh, We had great conversations with the team at Walmart. They are incredibly smart folks that like know their customer, they know their mission, they know their business. And so this opportunity to partner with them at the everyday low prices of Walmart with a line we call M&A by Monica and Andy. So the line at Walmart is called M&A by Monica and Andy. Um, It has like a few SKUs, but obviously those SKUs are like deep as we get a chance to get into the Walmart doors, gave us this incredible opportunity to be meeting folks in person in a way that like we just didn't have plans to scale our physical retail and got us in front of an even a new consumer that maybe wasn't shopping the monicanandy.com business. And so it's been really exciting this opportunity to bring organic to more families or like this organic first lifestyle to more families. Walmart's been such a leader as you look at organic grocery. Um, even the neighborhood Walmart that was that was just up the street from us had closed a, a bit ago, but the the neighborhood Walmart that was here a lot of my favorite plant-based organic brands were at Walmart. Um, and so it's really interesting how they've really led in this, like, or in the organic lifestyle. And so the opportunity for them to bring it into the children's space that we've been very fortunate to be a part of. Got it. And I know that uh, I was doing some research and this was, I think, 2021, but you had a partnership also with Target that included an exclusive collection. Is that right? Yes. yes so can you just did. talk Talk about just how you go about making these collections that work specifically with these retailers, what the conversations are like, et cetera. Yeah. So I think that um, with Walmart, the relationship has been so special because we've developed like a really one-to-one relationship with like the team and the buyers. And I think there's a difference as you're thinking about bringing these, developing these relationships. It's amazing to be online at any big retailer, Right. It's even more incredible when you're a direct-to-consumer business that's born online to be able to be in physical stores with these retailers because then you have an opportunity to actually meet their customer directly where they're shopping in stores. And while these big box stores have massive online businesses, they also have like massive physical presences. And so being part of the physical presence is a really special opportunity. And I think that there's no there's no direct way to get there. Like in the case of Walmart, you know, they sent us an email and they came to us and that's how we got a chance to to meet them. So I can't 
tell you that there's any like detailed strategy in which you, you know, build that type of a business. But if you're looking to do it, I mean, I think in certain cases, there's agencies that work with a lot of these retailers. There's, they go out and they're on the road to like always be checking out the latest and greatest of the brands that are out there. So the buyers that work for these companies, I think seem to do a really good job of having their hand on the pulse of like what's new and exciting out there. And then obviously it's like, the broader strategy of like their business on what they can approach and what they can do. And I think then you have to be poised to really be able to scale your production needs. So we were really fortunate that we had brought in some top talent during COVID. We had like, like everybody else in the world retooled our supply chain during COVID, right? Diversified from our location perspective, but we ended up working with the most amazing got certified factories that really had this ability to scale big um, and that was just like fortuitous that we were in the, in that position as we got the opportunity. So I think there's like, how do you get in front of somebody and get the opportunity? And there's multiple ways to potentially do that. But if you get the opportunity, are you poised to like scale to the ability of what some of these retailers would want? And I think that's probably the bigger challenge that a lot of folks will face because there's so many different steps in terms of being able to like to, to scale to like 1100, you know, Walmart doors specifically. And I wanted to ask about that. So can you give a little bit of details just about the diversification? And did you, when you went to these new manufacturers, was the idea that scale was in mind or it just sort of? Yeah. So we went to the new manufacturers like long before the Walmart relationship came into the picture. So the idea always, Kale, as we were doing stuff is like, we want to work with God certified factories. So the quality of the factories and that certification was really important to us. But over time, we were able to like, to, um, Obviously, as a company starts, like you have only as sophisticated of a sourcing channel as your years in business, so to speak. So in year one, you're like, great, I'm like working with the best factory that I possibly can. But a lot of those factories, the quality is absolutely exceptional, but their their ability to like, you know, deliver to 1100 Walmart doors may not be there from day one, right? And so for us, it was very fortuitous that we ended up during COVID saying, hey, let's take a whole look at our supply chain. We brought in like our first ever like chief sourcing officer. That person had like deep relationships like within the industry, had been doing it for like a much bigger business than us. And I think that's part of the magic too of scaling is you want to make sure that you have a mix of like people that have never been there and done it because that's kind of the magic of a direct consumer business. It's like some folks are learning on the job. As you really start to scale, you want to couple that with people that have seen it and done it at scale, because you kind of, you don't, you don't want only people that have seen and done it at scale. Cause they're moving off of like a cruise liner kale onto like a life raft, so to speak. Like the direct to consumer business is going to feel like if you're working on a team with a thousand people, you're coming to a team with 25 or 30 people, there's not as many resources, right? So you don't want to take all 25 of your team, and bring them from the biggest business that's out there because like, they're going to be like, wait, who's doing that? Like, where, where's the team? What's happening? Right. But if you, if you couple a few of those folks, which is what we did with kind of like the, the scrappy direct-to-consumer, you know, just got started on the job and we're learning it all here, that to me is where like some of the magic happens. And so sourcing for us was an area in which we're like, we need deep experience now. How do we have somebody that really understands like how to scale from a factory perspective? And so we were sitting in just the right spot when Walmart came knocking for us to be able to, to hit that scale but it wasn't like a planned out, it wasn't like some plan that we had in place. And frankly, if COVID had not happened, I don't think that we would have flipped the supply chain as quickly as we had to, 
just because like COVID, we just, we just had to do it like everybody else did. Actually, I want to ask about that last point you made with bringing in veterans or people with, you know, experience compared to startup culture. And I feel like this is an issue that a lot of companies face. There are some in the headlines right now that where it's pretty much a startup, you know, is growing and scaling. They try to bring in a veteran and then there's a huge clash of culture just in terms of how it works. How have you been able to make that work as you've grown and you've brought in people who have more enterprise level experience? Um, you know, it's it's definitely different for them because they're working, as you said, on a life raft, but it's also different for the people who have been at Monica and Andy or any other brand for a long time because they've been, you know, working with what they got and it's, it's very different than working at a big corporation, if that makes it's any sense. It's very different. I will say that I think that we have thoughtfully vetted the people that we brought in from larger organizations to make sure that those folks are fairly entrepreneurial. And so I think you need to, and you know, we've brought in like some, sometimes you bring in people and it works great. And sometimes you bring in people and it doesn't work as well. Right. Like not every person that we brought in has been like a home run and that's not been based on like them being the wrong person. Sometimes it's like just the wrong environment for success, right? Like somebody that can do well at a big company, as we talked about, isn't necessarily somebody that can do well at a small company. But I think part of the magic is in the mix of both together and really like honoring each type of individual and making sure that like they are, they're able to have an area in which they feel like they can perform and deliver. So that like, as you're bringing in the folks from the bigger companies, the people that have been here for a long time feel like welcomed in, like, hey, these are people that we can learn from. And by the way, they can learn from us too because they haven't done it. So I think it's this idea that like people can learn from each other that's a really important part of the culture because the people that are coming in from the big company are going to learn as much from the people that have been at Monica and Andy and that have been doing it from the ground up as we're going to learn from them. And then I think as you scale, it's really, and I have an incredible executive coach that works with the executive team and beyond. And we really have thought about, okay, how do we really think about um, each of our strengths and weaknesses? Like, do, do I understand like my weaknesses as I look at my co-founder? Like, what's the, make, what's the cerebral makeup of the team? You know, we learned that a lot of folks uh, from us on an executive level were very divergent. And we were like, oh, we've got to bring people that can actually come and like converge. We lacked structure as an executive team as we hired. We're like, let's make sure that we're looking and hiring for people with structure. And so like, thinking about that type of coaching as it extends beyond and like bringing that on down in the organization over time, I think is really important because you can see how like, if you start to scale really quickly, be very easy to build a dumpster fire underneath that because like there's so much of that fast scaling that does not allow for like structure and process. And so we're very focused. It's not like, I mean, we got, we got areas and opportunities and things to work on like anybody else but we're at least like trying to be aware of what we might lack and like how we could potentially build that. And so I think it takes thoughtfulness. And I also will say that, you know, we have had incredible like investors and advisors and nobody has said, you have to scale and you have to do it quickly and you need to raise massive amounts of money and you need to spend them right now for customer acquisition. The idea is always like, how can we build a long-term and enduring brand and business and do that thoughtfully? And so I've been really supported all around by everybody that's had like that same vision. And so every step we've been like, okay, how can we be like thoughtful about this next step? Which doesn't mean that it doesn't feel like crazy inside sometimes like, oh, so many things are happening. And we're like, it, it doesn't mean that like, we feel like, you know, it, it, there are easy days by any means, but I feel like the overall business has been like, how can we thoughtfully grow over time and be smart about it? And I think that's been helpful. Cause as I look at some of my peers, I feel like 
you know, maybe people have been forced to make like big choices and decisions and they haven't, you know, it's, it's like hard to keep it all together underneath all of that. Absolutely. That leads me to a million other questions. And I'm going to put two of them together because I've in my notes, one thing that I was reading in the in my research is that like, especially in this last year, and I think you're certainly not alone in this, but you've been focused on sort of growing, but growing profitably and understanding the bottom line. And I wanted to ask, A, like how you're approaching that, how that's going overall, but also how has that shifted your your marketing strategy? Because I feel like, you know, yeah, just I'll, I'll leave it there. How has that shifted your marketing strategy? Definitely. I will say, so, so to start, I think I have been really fortunate to have incredible investors and advisors, as I was saying. And so this idea of like, when you asked initially about the Omni business, like, did we think we were going to do that? No, but our advisors were telling us five years ago that companies that are going to do really well over time are going to be these like Omni-driven companies. And so like, find yourself like investors and advisors that can see way around the corner for you. Cause like there's people that can see some of this stuff coming. And like, if you have a few of those people, it helps. And I would say the same thing with profitability. So the moment that COVID started, the minute March of 2020, April of 2020, our board was like profitability, like that is going to be the most important thing in the future. And March or April of 2020 is long before I feel like everybody was like really talking about profitability. And maybe they were even talking about it before that. But I think there's nothing that's been special about our ability to do any of this. What's been special is the advice that we've received and the thoughtfulness of that advice. And I think to the team's credit, the ability for the team to listen and take that advice, because it's not in times where you see people raising and spending massive amounts of money. And it's like you see these unicorn companies and everybody's talking about them. Luckily, like I was never the cool kid anyway. My brother and I talk about that like a lot. Like we weren't cool. So like if we're still not cool now, it's okay. Cause like we never were, you know? And you look around and there's these founders and you're like, wow, these people are so cool. They fray, you know, whatever. And, and in the day that Andy did it at Bonobos too, it was different. You had to raise a lot of money. Those those folks were pioneers, right? Like you had to build everything from scratch. You don't need to do that anymore. And it doesn't mean that there's not money to be raised and like and and like we've done everything a hundred percent. But I think this idea of profitability is like newer, where it's like been the biggest buzzword in what the last like year and a half, it's like all you hear about. But profitability doesn't start overnight. There are a lot of building blocks to make that happen. And so I think as it relates to marketing, the idea is like you have to be extremely disciplined about it then. And so marketing for us is something we're like, I mean, my call right after this today will be our like, how are we for spend? Like what's ha- what happened over the last week? And so I think it's more, you have to like almost have, it's like you're flying a plane. What are the instruments that you want to be looking at all the time to measure the health of the business? And if we see things start to spike on the marketing side, we're like, all right, we're going to pull this down. Like we're not going to be spending money in a way that isn't profitable. And that's very different than the way the world worked like five or six years ago. But I think for some people, it's it's hard to catch the train because it's sort of already left the station. And the only reason it didn't hadn't left the station for us is like we got this great advice a, a few years back now that started us on like the on I think the right track for it. Yeah, no, I think a lot of brands they will talk about how they're on a path toward profitability and they're working toward it. But also, if you haven't been working on that for for years, you can't just flip a switch. You can't just be like, all right, now we're, you know, unless you turn off all your marketing, but then what happens, you know? It's hard. And it's hard. I mean, it's hard times out there right now. I feel like if you think about direct-to-consumer businesses, and we've been fortunate, like, every and beyond that, everyone's been through the ringer that has a business, right? Like, first, there was, like, too much, like, there what you could, couldn't get anything in the supply chain. Like, COVID just started, like, 
such an unfortunate series of events that I feel like, and there's such a burnout from so many founders and so many teams at this point, because it's like, oh, what next? Now the world is like over inventoried with stuff. And now like the, the markets have more fallen apart. Like there's compression in the valuation. So it's sort of like, it's, it's, it's a marathon. It's not a race. And you, you constantly have to be pacing yourself for that next mile. Got it. Um, we're just about running out of time, but I have a million more questions, but I, I think I'll leave it to two. But okay. first, just going back to the the wholesale thing, wh- what percentage of the overall revenue right now would you say is wholesale and what is your hope for it to be? Yeah, that's a good question. It's still like the overall percentage of revenue from wholesale is like still small for us, I want to say. Um 10% maybe 20 like it's it's still it's not it's not huge yet in the sense that like we've been building this business for you know 8 or 9 years right a decade almost and then wholesale is just coming now where we could see wholesale over time maybe that could be a third of the business and i think there's other like as we as we really think about like where that could go i think i don't want anybody to walk, step away from this thinking that there's not power in direct to consumer People come online, they shop your brand, and they love to be able to do that. So I think like nobody's stopping. That said, the ability to reach people in person and for us to be able to reach like a whole nother customer at the everyday low prices of Walmart with a diffusion line is this M&A by Monica Nandy is extremely exciting because it unlocks another, a whole new human for us to be able to talk to and be able to make accessible that product. And so I think there's opportunity to continue to scale that, but there's a lot of opportunity to continue to scale it on, on the monicanandy.com business as well. And so I, if I think, Kale, I think about, and I won't say any names, but like there's children's brands out there that are like three and a half billion dollars plus, right? The children's market is huge. And like, we're just scratching the very surface of it. But I think it's a really exciting time because I think that customers and communities are hungry for brands that like parents can really connect with. And I think there's a lot of like new and cool brands out there that are really going to resonate with the consumer that are going to start to chip away at, at the hundred plus year old businesses that are there. Absolutely. And so my last question is just talk about plans and goals. You know, now that you have this big, uh, you know, partnership, you know, wholesale deal, you know, underway for, I guess now, over six months, seven months now, what are you, what's going to happen the next year, two years? What are you thinking about? Will it be product expansion? Just what are you thinking about? Yeah. So I think there's expansion within wholesale. So by the time this podcast comes out, we'll be in, we'll, we'll have launched a maternity line with Walmart as well, which is really exciting. We have maternity at the monicanandy.com business. And so I think, um, an opportunity to, to grow our business and work more with the Walmart folks is always going to be like one of our, our best and and favorite opportunities just because it's been such a great relationship. The opportunity to grow and scale at monicanandy.com right now, it's actually been really exciting. We're, and we just launched a new website on Friday. It's still kind of in like the testing phase. It looks <laughs> like it's going to stick, which is good. But like we That's didn't, good. I didn't know, which is good. We have quietly been selling cribs, strollers, baby monitors. This is all the dot-com business. And the opportunity for us to sell folks and tell folks more that are at this like event stage of having a baby is something we're really excited about doing. You see the demise of like the really sadly, and we had a great relationship with Bye Bye Baby, loved the team there as well, was really sorry to see that go. I think it was like a huge resource within communities. There's a void that there's that that people are going to be able, that are going to need to fill. And so for us, we're 
we're thinking about like, all right, how do we step into like what, what part of that void makes sense? And so I think this opportunity to feel even more like a parenting lifestyle brand over the next few years is really there for us, like anchored by organic apparel always. But um, a lot of people that are buying that are buying their crib and their stroller and like these other products. And so, you know, we really see this opportunity to, you know, to bring parents information and to bring parents quality product, whether that, you know, that's at the dot-com business, whether the folks are shopping at Walmart or like any of the other places that we might work with in the future, but we're small and we're a lean team. And so being thoughtful about our next steps and like deliberate is going to be really important for us. Well, that's super exciting. Monica, this has been a wonderful conversation. Thanks for joining. Thank you so much. Lovely to be here. Thank you for having me, Kale. And thank you for listening to this episode of the Modern Retail Podcast, a show by Digiday. If you haven't already, please do subscribe and send this podcast over to a friend who you know would enjoy it. See you next week.